Well, my college board score, you know, at, at that time, 1,600 is the top score. At the lower end, people scored 900, kind of in the middle, 1,000, 1,100. I scored 725, which means you're like a vegetable. My father said, 725, that must be a mistake. They must be missing the other half of the score. So he wrote to the college board people and said, either this is the time he took it or you're missing half of it. And they wrote back, no, that's his total score. I took it again. Ironically, I scored 725 again. I mean, what's the chances of that happening? But I said, look, Dad, I got 1450 when you add them together. That changed everything. And, and only one college in America accepted me main campus. That was West Virginia University. You know, I was just too stupid to think I was a failure. I, I didn't think about that. All I could think about experience was, all right, this is a hand I'm dealt. My first job was working for a weekly paper in my hometown called The Village News. I told people I was the village idiot because I was working first for $60 a week, then $120 a week, and then I got a job with a daily newspaper for $200 a week. Now, even back in 1982, <laughs> that was really bad money. A lot of things that were taught in school, like for instance, I didn't even know what 10% of 100 was until I got in the business world. I just, it, it did not register me. But once I started working in the business area, all of a sudden it made sense to me, like math made sense to me. In fact, I, my father laughed because I came up with the concept of reverse factoring. And I raised $3.2 billion uh, from three major investment banks. But unfortunately, all three of those guys went under in 2008 at the same time, which killed the business. But my dad said, let me understand this. You couldn't even add five plus five and get 10, but somehow you've come up with something that Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and Bear Stearns have all invested in uh, with you and think this can make them a lot of money. And I said, you know, it, all of a sudden, it, it made sense to me. So I think people always want to say, no, that can't happen. And yet they overlook the fact that if somebody puts themselves out there, tries it, that there's a reasonably good chance that that might work after all. It's all a matter of trying. I always tell my kids 50% of life is just showing up. 25% is working really hard and being the best you can be. And 25% is luck. You have no control over that whatsoever. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you 
for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Mark Kramer is the executive director of the Private Investors Forum and runs the Angel Venture Fair, bringing together the largest gathering of angel investors and entrepreneurs in the mid-Atlantic region of the US. He's worked with over 1,500 companies from all over the world, making introductions to angel investors. He's also a consultant to family business and was recently named Consultant of the Year. He's the host of the podcast, The Best Business Minds, which is listened to in now over 65 countries. And I was delighted and honored to be featured recently. Mark has been writing on angel investing and entrepreneurship for over 30 years as a national columnist for the business journal chain, regional columnist for Philadelphia Magazine and Smart CEO Magazine, and has written for Forbes.com and TheStreets.com. I can't wait to hear his thoughts on what makes a great entrepreneur and investor and what, in his experience, are the trip hazards to avoid along the way. And of course, his unlock moments of remarkable clarity that have guided his path. Mark Kramer, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the unlock moment. Gary, thank you so much for having me. And God, every time I hear your voice, I wish I had that same accent. Boy, would I be look so much smarter. Well, I've just been recovering from man flu, actually, which has given me a, a rather lower tone to my voice. It was actually quite good for the old radio vibes on, on the podcast. We've done this conversation the other way around, but today it's all about you. Uh, and I really want to hear about your journey and the wisdom that you've picked up along the way. So you spend your life working with entrepreneurs and investors and family businesses. And you've had very many of those people that you work with on your fantastic podcast, Best Business Minds. Is that entrepreneurship, investing, is that a mindset that's in your DNA? Tell me where that all started for you in your own journey. Well, uh, my, my grandfather was in business. My dad was in business. But frankly, I, I ended up working with entrepreneurs because I couldn't get a job. I had to create my own jobs. And I was always a creative thinker trying to start new things. And so people don't like to hire people who think out of the box. Every company says they want that, but they definitely don't want that. And in order to be able to support myself and my family, I always had to come up with new ideas and launch these uh, new ventures. But frankly, when I got started, I was going to be a career sports writer. I started writing when I was 15 for newspapers. And then uh, I met my wife and realized that uh, it wasn't conducive to be a sports writer and all the travel, the pay wasn't great uh, to build a family. So I started to create side businesses to bring in money. And that just uh, snowballed into me um, starting bigger and bigger businesses and raising, raising more and more money. And I, I actually started um, the world's first formally organized investor angel network in 1990 because I wanted, I wanted access to rich people. And if you didn't know rich people, there was no way to get, uh, get to them. Now you've got angel groups all over the world. And when did you first become really aware of the concept of money when you were growing up? Oh, I would say when uh, my father went bankrupt, I was 12 years old, getting ready to turn 13. And all of a sudden, I felt like my life was turned upside down because my dad's business went under. And now we're worried about, you know, will we be able to stay in our house? What's going to happen to us? And my dad fought through it. And my mother's father helped him start a second business in the medical equipment area. And we got through it. But in a sense, it kind of both scarred me for life and also 
put the drive into my life that even at 61, I still have this great fear of ending up under a bridge in a box. So you were young at that time when, when that happened to you. Yes. Yeah. And I became an adult real fast after that. My sisters, I got one four years younger, one eight years younger, didn't impact them the same way. They were too young. But for me, it was uh, enormously impactful. And what did you actually experience? What, what, what was the thing that, that brought that so vividly home for you? Well, I, I think seeing my father uh, crying and wondering how he was going to take care of us. And my mom ended up going back to work. She was a stay-at-home mom. You know, watching your father, who you always feel as the tower of strength, melting in front of you. And, you know, you're, you're not sure, like, how, what's happening with your own world. And it makes you frightful because, like, if it's happening to him, what's going to happen to me? And after that, I became a very much more serious person, serious student, and uh, serious about everything. Like, for instance, I've never taken any drugs whatsoever. I don't drink at all, all because I feel like I need all my faculties focused. And I work typically about 80 hours a week. Again, I feel like I'm running from something, which is unnatural. And I've seen a therapist about it, but nobody can really change my mindset about this. So right through your teenage years, you were, you were quite a, a, a serious student. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't say I was a great student, but I was serious about it. Uh, and I worked really hard. I, I think I also had learning disabilities because my uh, when I took the entrance exams to get into colleges, I did really poorly. And my guidance counselor told my father I wasn't college material. Uh, lucky for me, I come from um, Jewish. I come from a culture of education. So my father said, you know, what's he supposed to do if he doesn't go to college? You know, we were done doing, uh, you know, construction work after we got done the pyramids. So uh, that wasn't going to be an option for me. So, so tell me about that, that journey then. So you, you, you had challenges in your exams that you took before going to, to college. And, and then what were the choices ahead of you? Well, my college board score, you know, at, at that time, and, and now it's again, 1600 is the top score. At the lower end, people scored 900, kind of in the middle, 1000, 1100. I scored 725, which means you're like a vegetable. Uh, and so my father said, 725, that must be a mistake. They must be missing the other half of the score. So he wrote to the college board people and said, either this is the time he took it or you're missing half of it. And they wrote back, no, that's his total score. I took it again. Ironically, I scored 725 again. I mean, what's the chances of that happening? But I said, look, Dad, I got 1450 when you add them together. So uh, that changed everything. And, and only one college in America accepted me main campus. That was West Virginia University. And I'm a proud mountaineer for have gone there. But they were looking for kids from out of state because nobody even thought of going to that school. You know, 95% of the kids at that time were from the state of West Virginia or Western Pennsylvania. And you felt like a failure at that time, you know, with the exam results and so on? You know, I was probably I was too stupid to think I was a failure. So I, I didn't think about that. All I could think about, again, probably driven from my, my father's experience was, all right, this is the hand I'm dealt. And at that time, I went to journalism school. I was going to be a sports writer. I just got to focus on my craft and get good at it. 
so I can get a job at it. So I, I didn't feel like a failure. And I won. I, I was nominated for two college Pulitzers. Uh, so I knew that I had a future in writing. But then again, back in 1982, 10 major papers folded in the United States. And that was not a good time to uh, leave college in 82 when interest rates were about 20%. So I did write for five years for newspapers. I, I My first job was working for a weekly paper in my hometown called The Village News. I told people I was the village idiot because I was working first for $60 a week, then $120 a week. And then I got a job with a daily newspaper for $200 a week. Now, even back in 1982, <laughs> that was really bad money. And uh, I met my future wife and started side businesses to make extra money. And then that pushed me into the world of entrepreneurship. So do you think the entrepreneurship was in your DNA or do you think you were forced into it? Or is it a combination of the two? I think I was, I think it, it's a combination of both. I mean, people say, um, and well-known people say, oh, I'm, I'm the entrepreneur's entrepreneur. But frankly, I never aspired to that. I have friends who aspired to be entrepreneurs. I did not want that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but no one would ever hire me. You know, I would come to an interview and I would say, here's my ideas. I'd even write them out. And they would say, well, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thanks for coming. And uh, and this has been happening my entire adult life because even now as an entrepreneur, sometimes I'll see some position. I'll say, oh, you know what? That would be really interesting uh, to do. And they would like, yeah, that, yeah, Mark, really? I mean, like you do all these ventures. I mean, you never really work for anybody. Yeah, but I would love to do it. Nah, it's okay. <laughs> and, and where did you start? Where, where, where was the, the first time that you really thought, I'm onto something here? Well, I don't know if I ever really thought I was onto something as opposed to just like, hey, this is what I need to do to survive. I mean, even, I hate to admit this, but in middle school, I became a bookie and I started taking bets and actually made great money out of it until the uh, vice principal shut me down. Um, year, uh, three years later, I had made really good money at doing that and probably should have kept that as a career. But uh, I realized that I had a pension for it. I even took over the high school paper, which only went to the valedictorian or the salutatorian. And I pestered them so much that they finally said, if you stop calling us, you can be the editor. And I took it from 81 years of losing money to making a lot of money in one year wiped out all the past debt and left them with a surplus. So I guess I had a natural knack for it and I just kept doing it. And that's the way it's been. And my mind is constantly thinking up new ideas. I'm like a popcorn machine for ideas. The thing that comes to mind is the exams that you took, what you're supposed to learn and supposed to know for, for the tests, that was a challenge. But something else that was equally valuable in life was something that was very natural to you. Do you think that, that in school, we're not very good at teaching entrepreneurship? Well, I don't think, um, I mean, they're just starting to teach entrepreneurship now in schools in the US, uh, both in high school and in college. Uh, I mean, there's schools dedicated to entrepreneurship. And what's great about entrepreneurship is that you learn how to become resilient, that you learn all different facets of business that you basically can be plugged in almost anywhere and do it. So I think all of those things, everybody should have to do. Everybody should take 
some entrepreneurship classes, even if you don't become an entrepreneur. So I think all, all of that is good. But I think that uh, the thing about entrepreneurship, it teaches you how to become self-reliant and how to think through problems. So I think um, that's a great way for anybody to be able to survive life. And it's interesting, when we've talked on, on your podcast, we were talking about the value of being able to ask a really good question. And you've here talked about the value of being able to come up with lots of ideas or the value of being able to solve problems. And a lot of things that particularly in school are tested for is about knowledge and particular skills and ways of doing things that are taught. Um, but actually in life now, with, with the amount of change that we're all going through, some of those other skills become really, really useful. A lot of things that we're taught in school, like for instance, I didn't even know what 10% of 100 was until I got in the business world. I just, it, it did not register me. But once I started working in the business area, all of a sudden it made sense to me, like math made sense to me. In fact, uh, my father laughed because I came up with the concept of reverse factoring and I raised $3.2 billion uh, from three major um, investment banks. But unfortunately, all three of those guys went under in 2008 at the same time, which killed the business. But my dad said, let me understand this. You couldn't even add five plus five and get 10, but somehow you've come up with something that Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and Bear Stearns have all invested in uh, with you and think this can make them a lot of money. And I said, you know, it, all of a sudden, it, it made sense to me. And I think that a lot of the things that were taught in school, the way they present it is not the way we see it or the easiest way to learn. So I taught 18 years at universities, uh, most all of it as an adjunct. And so I would teach my students in ways that they were dealing with things on a day-to-day basis so it was more understandable. But I mean, frankly, it may have been also that I was not a great test taker because I was thinking of going to law school and I took the law boards. And at the time, I think top score was 60. And I went to Stanley Kaplan's a, a group that prepares you for them. And I took a practice exam and I scored seven. So seven, again, is below vegetable. Now, like before I was a vegetable, now I was dirt. And so they were like, listen, you know, the best we can do is get you a six or eight point leap. Uh, you're not even getting into a school that's run by a prison. So, you know, we're just going to refund the money and, you know, have a nice life, whatever you decide to do. So I said, no, I want to stick with it. And I, and I took the boards and I increased my score from seven to 28. And every time I took it, I... I improved on it. And how I ended up improving was I started taking three law boards a day. And it really is a more of a mental marathon. So the more of them you take, the fresher you are. So when the actual day came, I was as fresh as a daisy through the whole process. So that made a difference. And I'm a big, uh, I prepare for everything. I mean, literally everything. I'm incredibly well organized, even going out on a date. I've already arranged everything. So I think preparation is just so important, at least for me. What's the role of failure in making you more resilient? Do you have to fail to be a successful entrepreneur, do you think? Oh, I, I think so. I mean, we don't like it. But I have to say that there was a part of my life where everything, every ball I threw up fell in the hoop, you know, basketball analogy. I didn't miss any shots. And then all of a sudden I went cold. And started to really doubt, like, 
maybe I'm not that smart after all, or, you know, how lucky was I? But then I realized, you know, um, when we're successful, we think it's all because of our brilliance. And when we fail, we, you know, maybe even think it's other people, or maybe we do think we're stupid, but it it really is um, at the end of the day, you put your best effort and you don't know how it's going to turn out. And I just realized, and I tell my kids this, the only thing I care about is best effort. Even when I watch sports, I say, if that coach is uh, getting the best out of his players, it's not the coach's fault that they're not winning. It's not even players' fault that they're not winning. So I think that what failure did for me was crystallize a couple things. One is, um, and I never thought this, but you're definitely not the smartest guy in the room. Uh, second of all is that you have a, there's so much out of your control that you can't worry about that. You can only focus on what you can do. And you do it as well as you can. I'm in a new venture now in the metaverse. And my partners were saying, uh, well, we brought this outside consultant in. And he was saying, well, what if this company just does, you know, copies you? Okay, so what? I have no control over that. Stop wasting time on things you have no control over and do the best you can. Even in dating, you know, when you meet somebody, either have chemistry or you don't. And you can't look at yourself. And the only thing you can say is, how could I make myself be the best I can be? And that's the same in business. You know, what do I need to do to be the best I can be in business? And that means reading business books, asking lots of questions, learning from other people. And when you fail, look at it and say, what could I have done differently? Maybe there's nothing you could have done differently. Sometimes you fail and it has nothing to do with anything that you did bad timing, wrong product, wrong service, wrong people, lots of stuff. And what I really like about the way you describe this is how clear, I mean, how clearly you articulate it, but also how clear it is in your mind. And I think about many of the people that I work with in in coaching, that if they were listening to you now, I think they would hear that same clarity that you have, clarity of what you think, clarity of how you're deciding clarity of what you do. Um, But for most people, they don't find it that easy because letting go is hard. Letting go of the, but I want it to be successful. It matters to me that it's successful. And you're saying you just have to show up and and, and do your best. And that's the bit that you can control. And And it is, it sounds simple. It is simple, but it's also hard. Like if it was that easy, we'd all be walking through life without regret and without fear of the future and without imposter syndrome. But everyone's got that. So, so how do you get to that mindset of clarity that you have now? Well, I mean, I, I have that clear. Um, I have that mindset because I'm a big sports fan, and you watch what happens in sports. A guy kicks, uh, looks to kick a field goal in football. And, and it falls short, but some guy, the other team catches it and runs it back for a touchdown. What's the chances of that happening? Or a guy throws up a ball and it ends up in the hoop, uh, you know, from 60 feet out and you just launched it and went through. Somebody else is standing right in the basket and misses it. Or, you know, in business, Mark Zuckerberg thought he had three ideas and he thought Facebook had the least potential. And look what happened with Facebook. And they thought Elon Musk was insane about Tesla, that that could never happen. So I think, you know, people always want to say, no, that can't happen. 
And yet they overlook the fact that if somebody um, puts themselves out there, tries it, that there's a reasonably good chance that that might work after all. And it's all a matter of trying. So I always tell my kids 50% of life is just showing up. 25% is working really hard and being the best you can be. And 25% is luck. You have no control over that whatsoever. I mean, I have a friend of mine for years. He goes, luck has nothing to do with it. And then when he went through a series of events that did not work out, he was like, I, I tried everything. I did everything. Yes, you just have bad luck. I mean, I'll give you an example. I wrote a plan to sell lottery tickets in the United States online, which was not legal. And it required a state to say, yeah, let's do it. So one of the states uh, said, yes, we want to go and do it. And my investors were popping the champagne. They were super excited. And what happened? After they announced it, the governor came out and said he was gay, had an affair with his assistant, had to resign. The next governor canceled the deal. Okay, what was the chances of that happening? You know, so, and I've experienced a lot of those things where I would say, I was like, I was like driving the Titanic and I hit an iceberg in the middle of the desert. You know, what's the chances? So, but at the same time, you look at people and you say to yourself, my gosh, they overcame so much. Uh, you know, you'll see some actor who becomes a lead actor, uh, like Danny DeVito, and he's five foot one and round. Okay, really, if he comes in the room and there's all these handsome guys, and you're going to say, which of these guys do you think is going to have the most amazing career? Not the little short fat guy over here, but he does. And so I think that when you get up in the morning, you have to realize that you are capable of hitting it out of the ballpark. Again, I'm sorry for so many uh, American um, uh, sayings here, but uh, at the end of the day, you have the capability of becoming that next Elon Musk if everything falls right for you. And every uh, entrepreneur I've ever interviewed or met, super famous, you know, globally successful, I said, what do you attribute to? Every single one of them said, uh, luck. They all said, I work really hard, but I got lucky. And for those people who do have all of those things coming together, including the luck, and they do make it to be successful, how do, how do they stop the success really going to their head? How do they stay in touch with that there is luck in it and they remain grounded? I think a lot of people do believe in their own excuse me, bullshit, you know, that they actually think they're uh, God's gift, they're smart than everybody else, until they hit a, a bad streak. And once they hit that streak, that pretty much brings most everybody down to earth, except for people who really are uh, such, such large egos that they start blaming everybody else for their failure instead of looking both at themselves and circumstances around them. So I think that you know, and you always hear people who've gone from great highs to great lows, and you hear a lot of contrition in them, most people, not all people, but most people, and they start to realize that they're normal. And I think it's also important to surround yourself with people who are honest with you. I surround myself with people uh, who are smarter than I am, more successful than I am, and I only appreciate honesty. I, I've had friends who weren't honest with me. And then I ditch them because I can't have people around me who aren't going to tell me the truth 
about things because that means they're holding me back from being successful. You know, it's one thing to insult somebody, but it's another thing to just lay it out there for them in a way that's um, palatable that they can say, oh, well, thanks for letting me know that. And that team, the close team around you, are they people that have been in your team for a long, long time? Or does it change over time who's in, who's in that group? Most of my friends I've had for between 20 and 30 years, maybe long. My best friend, we've been friends for 50 years. And if he tells me right now, it's, and it's dark outside because it's uh, 530 in uh, East Coast, and he said it was bright light outside, I'd swear to you it was bright light outside. So, you know, in, in his and I have friends like that that I absolutely uh, implicitly trust. Um, but I, I pick people like me in the sense of that they're direct uh, and it's no bullshit. So I think, you know, it's the kind of people that you want to surround yourself with. Some people want to be surrounded by sycophants that tell them what they want to hear. I just think that you're doing a disservice to yourself and the people that are trusting you with their futures if, in fact, you don't get um, have people be honest with you and do the right thing. So we talked a lot about the entrepreneur mindset. Tell me about the angel investor mindset. What, what makes a good angel investor and what are the things that people trip up on when they're trying to play that role? What makes good for a good angel is somebody who invests in industries that they understand where they can move the sales. Uh, I've told many angels that they're investing in some company or even ventures I've started. If you can't help and help open doors and increase the chances of your investment succeeding, don't bother. You know, if, if it's a biotech investment and you're a real estate investor and that's not something you really understand, don't put money into it because you're only going to be disappointed because you're going to be frustrated by the fact that you really can't do anything to help that company. And I think uh, that is a problem with some investors. Also, a lot of investors want to give uh, the entrepreneur advice all the time. Hey, they don't need advice all the time. In the beginning, what they need is for you to be supportive, understand what they're doing, and tell them how you can help them get more sales and recruit the right people. That's what they need help with. And so if you can't do that, then you shouldn't do it. And if you're somebody who wants a quick return on your investment, forget it. This is buying a lottery ticket. As soon as you write that check, goodbye, have a nice life, because you've just waved goodbye to that money. And if you can't afford to wave goodbye to the money, then don't do it. The other thing, I, you know, there's friend, family, and fool money in the beginning. I hated, uh, I just didn't want to raise any money from family. Because it's even if they said they could lose it, the pain of knowing that I lost their money. I once took money from friends for a venture that I became CEO of. I was losing so much sleep over their money. And they were super rich guys. They were like, stop losing sleep over my money. I wrote that check knowing I'll never see it again. But we did get their money back. Uh, so I was, And I said, never again am I taking friends' uh, money. And most, most entrepreneurs have to take friends and family money because those are the people that trust you and so forth. But you got to be careful that whoever's money you're taking, they can afford to lose it. And, and, and that's the case. I mean, people will say, oh, I can afford to lose it. Meanwhile, they're wringing their hands, w wishing they never promised that to whatever friend it is. 
But as an entrepreneur, you got to say to yourself, of course, if you're an honest, ethical person, should I really take their money? I mean, this must not be a, a good idea. And of course, it can ruin relationships as well. But I think that for entrepreneurs, you want to look for investors who can not only put the initial dollars in, but can give you follow-up dollars, and that they're people uh, that are unflappable in when things go bad. So there, there's still rich people who fall apart when things don't go well. But you need people who are going to prop you up and say, don't worry, things are going to work out. Let's um, think this through. I was once ran a venture where I did not get that kind of support. And I swore to myself that when I am on that end of being on the board, that I'll never do that to an entrepreneur. It's nothing. It's soul, uh, soul sucking and crunching when your investors are beating you up and you're already beating yourself up for the fact that this thing isn't working out like it should. And it's much better when the investors come in and say, hey, right now we're not being successful. So let's sit down and figure out what it is that we need to do. We're all rowing on this together and help build back uh, your confidence. Uh, so again, uh, the best, the what investors should look for is ventures that they could make a sales difference in or a technological difference, something where they enhance the competitive position of the company. So it's the money, it's the door opening, it's the advice, but then it's also that psychological safety, it's the support for the entrepreneur in, in those difficult early times. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, because it's so, it's so incredibly hard. The twists and turns that you go through, I, I, I was recently in a venture with a young entrepreneur, and he was definitely not cut out to be at the roller coaster, was making him throw up at with every turn. And me and the other guys who were involved in this venture, we realized he, it, he just, at least at this moment in time, he was not cut out uh, for this. It, you know, when the money wasn't being raised, he kept thinking, what are we doing wrong? We weren't doing anything wrong. It's just circumstances. Sometimes there's, uh, there is no correctable way, even though super smart people always think they can change the course of history because they're just so smart. But us uh, average mortals realize that that's not the case always. And so we don't, you try not to overthink it and realize that sometimes stuff's not going to work out. Maybe not now, but maybe it'll work out later, or maybe there's going to be adjustments or things will present itself, but you just don't fall apart. You know, in, in battle, if, if um, the leader um, all of a sudden falls apart, the line breaks and everybody dies. So you can't do that. And that's the same in business. I can't stand panic. I mean, if there's one thing that gets on my nerves, it's panic. You know, when people panic, my, I always tell my kids, I don't panic on any situation. Remain calm and let's think this thing through because panic is only going to make the situation much worse. So I, I, I really do. That's like my only pet and peeve in life is um when people fall apart, even when I watch it on TV, I almost have to turn the channel, even if it's just a movie, because it bothers me so much. And when you feel the panic rising in the room, what can you do to dampen that down, dampen down the flame? I, I tell people, unless somebody dies, it's no big deal. So anything can be fixed. We can overcome anything. There's another day, all of those things. 
there's no purpose in getting upset, pointing fingers, uh, or uh, looking for a window to jump out because, again, uh, a storm comes, at some point it blows over, the sun will come out again. And I have to think about that myself every day, like when things don't go right or I go through a period where nothing is working out and I keep, I say, okay, I got to play through it. I got to just keep one foot in front of the other. My whole life has all been about put one foot in front of the other. Is legacy important to you? I think legacy is important to me uh, because I want my kids to be proud of uh, what their father accomplished. And I wanted to leave Earth making my mark and saying what I did amounted to something. So at least at a minimum, you know, aside from my kids being amazing people, my daughter has a global marketing practice and she's much smarter than I am. And my younger daughter uh, is incredibly resilient, maybe the most resilient. She works in the movie industry where getting knocked down is a daily occurrence uh, for them. I guess because I created the country's first formally organized investor angel network and knowing how the world's changed from that, uh, I feel like I've you know left my legacy. You know, The only way you'd know that I actually did this is if you went online. That's the beauty of the internet. And so all the stories, when I started this thing, like in Inc. Magazine, I was on the cover of Profit. So I felt from that standpoint, from a business legacy, Yes. And, you know, as a parent, seeing my girls be successful adults and well-adjusted adults, I feel like uh, myself and my ex-wife, we did a great job with them. We worked as a good team. And if you throw yourself back in time to have a chat with the kid who just scored 725 on college boards, knowing what you know now, what would you say? to that person? I would tell them, okay, 725 was your score. Uh, that doesn't tell how much heart you have. That doesn't tell uh, what potential you really do have because there's people who score 1600 amount to nothing in life. What matters really most is when you get up, do you throw yourself into the fray or do you run from the fray? I myself run toward the battle, not away from the battle. So if you scored 725, that's just a data point. That doesn't, that is not who, what your life is going to be. And that's why I tell people that all the time. You know, uh, when they tell me they come from whatever circumstance or their scores or whatever, I said, you determine how, how successful you could be, at least in your own mind. So you might not be, you know, I was hoping I'd be a billionaire and I'm not even remotely close to that. But I do feel that I gave my, I've given my best effort. I've gotten the most out of my talent. I've accomplished some things. I just didn't get to that billionaire status, but I don't feel that I haven't been successful. And, you know, and it doesn't, it's not measured about money or, or other things. It's really measured by effort and what kind of human you are at the end of the day. Uh, I think that's really what you're measured by is what kind of friend are you? What kind of father, partner, whatever that may be, that really is what determines if you're successful or not. Because, you know, the zeros is more a, a function of luck. You know, what if Elon Musk's car blew up? 
and all the investors ran for the door. You would never have heard of him. You know, if, if Steve Wozniak wasn't Steve Jobs' partner, we never would have heard of Steve Jobs because he was detested by the people who worked for him because he was brilliant in certain way, but he needed that partner. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's a combination of things. I mean, when I think about the good things that have happened in my life, I didn't plan on any of them. Literally, there was no concrete plan. I ended up teaching 10 years of the Wharton School because a guy, his wife went into premature labor. A woman from my synagogue worked one year at the Wharton School in this program and said, we need somebody for Latin America. If they need somebody from Asia, they wouldn't have asked me. But I had a, I was married to a Panamanian. I had a home in Panama. That changed the course of my life. Any of those, and by the way, that guy's son, that kid who was born, he became my business partner in another venture. What's the chances of that, right? I hear that refrain coming through and through and through. What's the chances? And yet it all happened. And I think there's something really, really powerful in just recognizing that that can happen and that's okay. And you've played your cards and you set yourself up in an environment where when that luck happens, you're there to take advantage. That's right. It's a great place to land. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For serial entrepreneur, author and podcaster Mark Kramer, it was being written off as a kid that set his focus on the way he wanted to face into life's challenges. It's an inspirational story and I'm so grateful for him sharing it with such openness and great humor. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you so much for having me. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.